Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we haven't recorded in a while, but because we sort of caught up on a lot of, uh, we did a lot of things in advance, but we're yeah, going to be well, headed out. We could take Christmas off. I like having Christmas off. Yeah, Christmas off, holidays off, right? Yeah. So now it's the 7th of January. We're back in the swing. We're going to be headed to NDC in London, basically at the end of the month. And uh, yep. it's always good to talk to you, my friend. What's new? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I spent New Year's up at the Coast Place, went through a couple of good storms, but today it's a blue sky day, sunny and beautiful, and it's hard to be unhappy surrounded by the ocean. Awesome. Well, uh, Jessica Dean's going to be coming up here in just a few minutes, but first we have this matter of better know a framework. Awesome. Roll the music. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? I found this by chance. Uh, it's a uh, image background removal tool that's free on the internet. Huh. It's www.remove.bg. Good domain. I, <laughs> I love how everybody has um, taken the, you know, the top-level domain, BG, for background. What is BG? I think it's Bulgaria. Is it Bulgaria? <laughs> I think it is, yeah. Remove Bulgaria. <laughs> Don't do that. That's not nice. <laughs> Well, anyway, um, I tried it, and it and it works if you have a pretty static background, right? But if there's oh, yeah. a lot of stuff happening in the background, some really funny things happen. So. Oh. <laughs> On the other hand, it's free, so you can get your money back. Yeah, but it's kind <laughs> of fun to try out. I, I just like the fact that a lot of things we used to lean on, you know, native apps for are just sort of showing up online still to this day. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yep. That's what I got. Who's talking to us? Uh, grabbed a comment off a show 1599, which is back in November of 2018, when we talked to Elton Stoneman about containers in Windows Server 2019. Yep. And lots of good conversation. That was a fun show. You know, it feels to me like Windows is finally starting to catch up on the containers thing and have the features that are needed. Yep. And this particular comment comes from Brendan Thede, who says, the happiest moment of my day was hearing about the improved support for Docker that is coming to Windows 10. That would be 1809, I think, that build. Mm. Specifically, they will no longer require Hyper-V. I've been sticking to the Docker toolbox, mainly because I'm not willing to give up VirtualBox. Yeah. Soon, I could have my cake and eat it too. <laughs> and that sort of begs the whole conversation about containers in the sort of development space rather than running lots of VMs like via VirtualBox and things. This might be an easier way to go. Sure. So that's cool. Yeah, it's very cool. So Brendan, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Muse to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Muse to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or we publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Muse to Code Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. Don't forget to remove the background. Nice. If you can do that. All right, let's bring on our guest, Jessica Dean. Uh, Jessica is a cloud developer advocate for Microsoft, focusing on Azure, containers, cloud, OSS, and of course, DevOps. Prior to joining Microsoft, she spent over a decade as an IT consultant and systems admin for various corporate and enterprise environments, catering to end users and IT professionals in the San Francisco Bay Area. And you could read more about her on our website, .nerox.com. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, everyone. Hey. Now, you've done a show with Richard, I guess, on Run As Radio? I have. I I know that I've 
been uh, in front of a microphone wearing headphones with Richard. I yes. honestly sometimes forget the names of the shows I've been on. Well, that's plus it was during build and I think you did like three shows back to back. So Yeah, and I just love talking about the content, but I think that recording was at uh Ignite in Orlando and everything is kind of a blur. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh any thoughts on this whole, you know, server 2019 and 1809 and using containers in Windows? Is this really a thing now? It is. I actually did a session with Patrick Lang uh, from the Windows team, who's actually one of the engineers working on uh, Windows Kubernetes. Uh, an important clarification is that when I talk about Windows Kubernetes, especially from an Azure perspective, in relation to either Windows Server uh, 2019 or otherwise version 1809, I'm referring to Azure Container Service Engine. It's not yet supported on AKS, so that's mm. just an important clarification. But I did a session with Patrick at uh, KubeCon in Seattle at the end of last year. So it December of 2018. And it the response was really positive. We were able to show how you could have a mixed environment. Uh, maybe you have a Linux database for your SQL server and you're still running a traditional IIS application. Uh, you can still use Kubernetes uh, with Windows containers, or you can also do, that would be maybe a more lift and shift scenario. And then you can mm -hmm. also do a more modern scenario uh, with maybe .NET Core. So the first scenario would be using ASP.NET, the second scenario being .NET Core, both scenarios using Windows containers to run your web application, and maybe a mixed environment with a Linux database on the back end. And when you're talking about Windows containers, you're talking about either on a, a Windows box or a VM in Azure or somewhere else, right? Well, so it's still a Kubernetes container, but yes, the host itself where you're running, the node uh, for your... Uh, I guess the node where your workload is running, your worker agent mm. is a Windows agent. And that that so the one thing is is kernel specific kernel specificity, it's a hard tongue twister, uh -huh. matters. So when you're using Windows, if you are doing 2019 or 1809, the same server that the same build server that you use to build that Docker container, that Docker image has to match whatever the node is that you're going to run that Docker image. So if you're doing both 1809, the, both the build server and the node in your Kubernetes cluster has to be the same. Uh, if you're using 1803 or 2016, again, it would have to be the same. But yes, to answer your question, the, where the container is running, because it is a container, it's not a virtual machine, right. but the virtual machine that's acting as the worker or the node in the Kubernetes cluster is Windows, but it's working right alongside a node that's Linux. Got it. Typically, when I think about a brownfield scenario like this, where I'm taking an existing app, I'm probably not going to have any Linux in the loop at all, right? So can you sort of talk me through what that migration looked like? Like, why would I want to take an existing working, like, IIS-based website and put it into containers? If you're trying to, quote-unquote, get more modern, you're trying to uh, do the latest and greatest that, I guess, the Linux community is getting, that's a lot of what we've been seeing, is people want to do it. I can't mm -hmm. give you a reason as to why you should, because everyone's reason would be different, but just showing you that it's possible. If you want to kind of scale down your overhead rather than having... Uh, one server to run all your different IIS websites and having to manage that, and you're looking for something for the benefits of containers, right? Something that's immutable, something that's portable, mm. that would be the benefit for that. And the fact that you're still using maybe more traditional uh, architecture, for example, ASP.NET, no longer limits you 
to what is possible with containers. You can still run that IIS application in a container. Granted, it's still going to be a lot larger than a Linux container. You're probably looking at something that's a gigabyte plus, hmm. but that's significantly less overhead than, let's say, 20 gigs to get your Windows operating system and server and everything up and running. Uh, granted, you would still have that for the node, but again, there's, there's trade-offs for that. Uh, of course, as you start graduating uh, in a real-world scenario to maybe updating your code and making it more flexible, doing something with .NET Core, and you actually invest the time into converting ASP.NET to .NET Core, then there's additional further immutability and portability benefits because you could run it either in Windows or Linux. And you could run it in app, Azure App Service, right? You can run it in Azure App Service. We have containers for both Windows or Linux. Uh, so you, you're not confined to a Kubernetes environment. You can yeah. do a wide variety of different types of containers. Seems ultimately flexible to me. So it's that brownfield application Richard's talking about that probably is where all this lift and shifting, lifting and shifting is going to happen. Yeah, I think really when it comes down to containers and Kubernetes, I don't always like the, the I guess, Due to the popularity right now, I think sometimes the belief is that like Kubernetes, this is it. This is the next best thing. Mm, but that's right. what we thought about virtualization as well, right? It's not the next best thing. It's just the thing that gets us to the thing. We also have serverless. We have the graduation of where we used to virtualize our hardware and our architecture, and now we're virtualizing our operating system. It's just the next progression. And so for the Windows community, if they want to kind of be on that progressional train that the Linux community has been on for several years, they now have an opportunity to do that. And then also, again, reap the same benefits there. Yeah, one of the things I appreciate about containers is they've sort of had that configuration as code thing the whole time. So you really don't update a container, you just make a new one. Exactly. And you can just, I mean, that's even how my website is, which is Linux based, but it'll operate the same way for Windows. So now you have that benefit. If I want to make a change, everything's containerized. I make one change, I push it to my CI CD, I test everything out, but everything's encapsulated in a container. I don't care where it runs. I know that that's going to operate the same way. Uh, right. And that's one of the benefits also now for for those that have Windows applications, they can reap those same benefits. I remember when I was a systems administrator and my web developers would give me code updates and I push it to dev or I push it to, I push it to test first, then dev, then QA, everything checks out, but you push it to prod and all of a sudden we have to roll back because that was broken. And there was a conflicting right. version of some dependency that was on prod that wasn't aligned to QA because you're trying to manage all these different servers. You no longer have to deal with it works on my machine. You have yeah. that portability that, mm. again, Linux containers have had for so long. Yeah. So it's literally the same configuration in pro, in dev, in test, in prod. Yeah, your environments are now the same. So it offers you that same testing, which is also beneficial from a DevOps perspective, right? Because the developers can sit there and test everything on their machine and know that when they hand it off, it's going to work the same way because all your binaries and dependencies are encapsulated in the runtime environment, which is your container. Now, obviously, there are a few differences from Linux versus Windows containers, one being the kernel support. Uh, in Linux, as long as you're still running something that's Debian-based or Alpine or whatever, 
you can build it on whatever version of Debian. If you build it on an Ubuntu 14.04 server and you're running it with a dependency of Ubuntu 18.04, like it, it's not going to make a difference. Your kernel isn't uh, dependent on that. But again, in Windows, just a reminder, if you build on 18.03, you have to run on an 18.03 node. If you build on 18.09, you have to run on an 18.09 node. All right. And that doesn't seem like that arduous a requirement. You just got to make sure your version numbers match. Your, your version of it matches, but that's, and that's probably, it doesn't sound like a big deal for somebody that comes from the windows world because it's just the way windows has always worked. But that yeah. is a difference. If, if you're looking to implement windows containers in your environment, but you also came from a Linux world, that is a different, uh, viewpoint than what we're used to. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the thing you're, you're anxious about this, but it's, you've got uh, Linux chops where this is an oddity. Where for us, yeah. it's like, eh, we're pretty much all running 1809 now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, and I do appreciate, you know, when we really talk about the cattle versus pets mindset to servers, that the fact that you could just shoot them and make new ones and they always generate, you know, the same, uh, it takes away all of those kinds of problems. Like the, I have dealt with a lot of IIS boxes over the years that were special, special pets. And their yep. configuration was unique and almost unreproducible. And so every time you updated something, it was risky as hell. Where if you're just building new each time, you literally are running the script from scratch and it generates the whole thing. It's just not the same level of risk. Well, and it's funny because actually last night, so I have virtual infrastructure at my home office that I play with, but the old saying that the cook always eats last in the kitchen is true. So I spent so much time, I was creating demo and content and all this other stuff. I haven't had a lot of time to really update my own infrastructure. So I'm almost embarrassed to admit, but I have a really old web server that isn't running any kind of container or anything. I have probably five or six different web applications that want to run a variety of things for home or like home projects and passion projects. And I updated something last night, which updated a dependency package and broke one of my other websites. And it took me two <laughs> hours to figure that out Ooh. because I've been living mentally in the world of containers for so long. I was thinking, oh, everything's isolated. But it's yeah. not in the traditional sense, right? When you're usually running multiple web servers or web applications on one web server, if you make a change on one dependency, it can break your other applications. With containers, not only can you just kill one container and restart it and everything goes back to normal, your dependencies and everything are also isolated. So you don't right. have to worry about something breaking because you update one application over here and it breaks something else over there. And, and here and we get back to why would I move to containers coming from a brownfield operating IIS-based ASP.NET app? It's because you do get to separate all of your apps into separate containers so they, they can have different dependencies and won't affect each other. Yes, exactly. And then when you go even further with Kubernetes, you can not only put it into separate containers, but you can put it into separate namespace which is right. like separate isolated environments because Kubernetes can also handle your networking and your security and in some ways your CICD because it can stand everything up that you need for your deployment, whether it's a dev environment, a QA, a prod. You can wrap things up in using Helm, which is a package manager for Kubernetes. You can kind of tie all this stuff up and have all your, it's more than just your application as code, right? Like at that point, it becomes your full infrastructure as code, your pipeline as code. Everything becomes code-based and automated. If I mm -hmm. make a change, I can just redeploy the previous pipeline that was working in case that change that I made was bad. Right. So it's easy to get back. And 
Exactly. It really kind of puts, um, from a developer perspective, we've always been used to using source control and uh, some version, whether it's a version or Git or something to store all our changes. But on the right. infrastructure side, because I was an administrator for 10 years, on the infrastructure side, we just made a ton of gold master images and we'd revert back to the images. And then you're sitting there running around with CDs and it, it was just a nightmare. And now I can do everything in code and it's one line that I deploy or I set up a pipeline through Jenkins or Azure DevOps mm -hmm. or any other tool. And it just goes through and does my process. I don't even have to think about it. I make a change on my local system to the infrastructure, I commit it, and then mm -hmm. the pipeline goes through and deploys my infrastructure. This is a conversation we're having on Run As routinely now where my IT guys are checking code into GitHub. Like They have source now too. It's the infrastructure configurations. I mean, I, I get all of the, the great benefits of using containers, the isolation, the speed, the, the code, um, the operational improvements, the productivity. I mean, there's so many great benefits. One thing not a lot of people talk about is is cost, right? How can shifting your apps from, you know, standard, either standalone VMs or even web apps uh, in Azure to a container-based solution, are you going to save money there? So you can. It, again, it really kind of depends on your setup and your infrastructure and your requirements. But now if you have one large cluster that's running thousands or you have several large clusters that's running tens of thousands, different containers, you're no longer having to also have the overhead of managing different environments and different virtual machines. All right. On the web app side of things, if it's something that's small scale, then that works fine. Obviously, you can increase your web app and you can have it scale, but your web app is limited to just a web application. What if you have other dependencies, you have backend databases, you have other connections that you want to keep everything isolated? Kubernetes or serverless technology can help expand that while simplifying or reducing your overhead. And then I know Azure also has the per, it's down to like per second billing at this point as well, just to streamline that even further. Yeah, certainly the management of of cloud resources is a big problem with all the you know with all the things that can creep up. And, yeah, and uh, whether it's cloud or whether it's local, because the other right. thing is some people still like on prem, right? But now even on prem, you're having to manage that hardware. You're paying for that hardware. You're paying for the overhead cost for the IT department to make sure everything's aligned, which is then still at risk for human error because you're not if you're going to use traditional virtual machine environments. There's no way that you can 100% guarantee every environment is going to be identical unless you do something that's encapsulated or a virtual type of environment to kind of keep everything, um, I want to say stateless, but obviously some applications are stateful, so then you can still attach a volume, but you keep everything uh, encapsulated and bundled up nice and neat. Right. And so you, you, you take away a lot of problems, but you now have new areas of focus that you need to work on, like, you know monitoring all of these things and uh, and keeping track of them with some good tools. Yeah, and that's the other benefit is using things in the cloud or using containers, you also have access into monitoring tools. And so you can see one of the benefits of um, specifically a, a container orchestrator like Kubernetes is you have a scheduler, right? So if your pod fails and your web application stops for whatever reason, and you have health tests and ping tests, that's kind of like built into your application there. Uh, what it was it called? It's, I feel like the Christmas break kind of, um, I, I fell asleep <laughs> for a little bit there. Um, but the, the, essentially they're just health checks that will sit there and probe into your container 
so you have that. And if the scheduler detects that the container is not responding in the way that it should to guarantee uptime, it'll kill that pod and restart it. And you can have multiple replicas. So if it kills that, it'll kill one pod. It'll restart one pod. It'll kill the second pod. It'll restart the second replica. So it, it makes sure that there's never downtime, essentially. On a web app, you don't have something that's sitting there monitoring, making sure it's up all the time. If it fails, you have to go in, kill that web app, redeploy it, mm -hmm. re even if you're using a container image, and make sure that everything's up and running. You right. don't have kind of eyes in the sky to always... Uh, not even alert you to what's going on, but just fix the problem. Jess, give us one moment here for this very important message. This episode of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Datadog, a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, logs, and distributed request traces from your cloud containers and orchestration software. Track the health and performance of your dynamic containers, apps, and services with rich visualizations and machine learning-driven alerts. Datadog's new cluster agent streamlines data collection from large container clusters and allows you to auto-scale Kubernetes workloads based on any metric you're already collecting with Datadog. To start monitoring your container clusters, sign up for a free trial today and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit dd.netrocks.com to get started. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell, Carl Franklin. It's .NET Rocks. And we're talking to Jessica Dean about containers and uh, the Kubernetes story. I mean, Kubernetes, you said it, is an orchestrator. The container itself, this is Docker? The, the container itself is Docker, but Kubernetes is just a container orchestrator, right? It's kind of the right. wrapper above that that's handling um, what to do with the container. But yes, Docker works along with Kubernetes. That's actually how the virtual virtualization works because you have the Docker engine mm -hmm. and you're using a Docker file to essentially build that image, and that image is what gets run in a container. Yep. We talked this through a couple of times. It's always good to just clarify each of those pieces. Yes, absolutely. And I still get asked that. I mean, for K Kubernetes has been out now for four, four years or a little over four years, maybe four and a half years um, as a widely or widely available, I guess, uh, tool piece. But it's still a popular question I get asked as far as how does, if you're talking about Kubernetes, but then I'm writing a Docker file, I thought Docker's a separate company. Kubernetes is an open source project. How does this tie in? And so it's it's always an important clarification that the two work together. And, and it, it's not the only orchestrator, right? No, it's not the only orchestrator. You have, obviously you have other tooling, uh, Docker Swarm being one or Docker Enterprise. Yeah. You Mesosphere had one, I, IBM has one. Um, there's all these other cloud providers, but most of the cloud providers now have actually kind of focused on supporting Kubernetes. So they'll have their own flavor of that. You have Cloud Foundry, Pivotal, or all these different things that are still Kubernetes driven. I'm, I'm just curious, why did Kubernetes win? Uh, because it just does everything really well, I want to say. I mean, there's certain things it still doesn't. Um, there's certain things when it comes down to networking and routing that the team is working on. It's an actively growing project. But I think one of the biggest benefits is it's an open source project. It was originally started by Google. It was based on the system that they use to run billions of containers per week. Their system was called Borg. And D Google's actually been doing containers before all the rest of us. They They were doing it 10 years before they released uh, Kubernetes, which at this point means they've been doing containers for almost 15 years. So they kind of know what they're doing very well, mm. but by donating it to the open source community and then the cloud native cloud foundation, you've also opened it up to a whole variety of different developers. So there's over 2,300 contributors to the project. Um, it's the fastest growing tool set, I think right now in, in technology in recent years. 
So it's just because it doesn't only do containers, right? It does networking, it does configuration maps, it does secret management, it does ingress controllers and networking. There's certain things with networking that you can also use, it, since Kubernetes is extensible, you can also use things like Envoy or Istio to further enhance your networking capabilities and your routing. So it's something that you can really make uh, it's malleable. You can really make it do what you need it to do for your environment. It's not a one size fits all. Whereas virtualization really was Docker swarm was very limited, even with Docker stack, um, mesosphere, kind of the same thing. There were certain changes that you'd want to make now being able to have a managed instance of a container orchestrator with Kubernetes, it makes it really simple. And even, uh, when I mentioned Istio for further networking, Google actually announced also managed versions of Istio. So now it'll create your managed uh, routing and networking requirements as needed for your Kubernetes cluster. So it's just, it's a project that's kind of taken the tech world by storm because it's something that you can, any, any enterprise can use with whatever their environment is. Doesn't necessarily mean that you should, there might be reasons that you don't want to and you wanna go more over into serverless or you wanna stay on-prem and do things in a more quote unquote traditional way, but it's an option that's there. And I think people really appreciate that. No, I had, I hadn't heard of Istio before. You can talk a little bit about that. So Istio, it uses what's called CRDs, custom resource definitions, uh, to ex extend or expand your Kubernetes instance, uh, orchestrator platform. So you can actually tie into, again, like I said, further things for, uh, for routing and for networking. So for example, if I wanted to do things like, uh, a blue green scenario for DevOps or AB or Canary, I can do that really simple with Istio because I can define my routing in code. Whereas the base version of Kubernetes kind of just lets me say, I want this service to point to this pod which is very black and white. Istio allows me to kind of granulate that out. I can also tie things over to, uh, with Istio, I can tie things over to Grafana to kind of graph out my instances and create monitoring and even tie that back over to another tool called Prometheus, which will also do logging and monitoring on my Kubernetes cluster. So it's just another tool set essentially to expand your Kubernetes capabilities. And again, it does so using um, resource definitions because it, your custom resource definitions, which in essence just gives you additional resources for your Kubernetes cluster. Uh, Open Service Broker for Azure is, an, is similar. Open Service Broker for Azure relies on Service Catalog and that also adds additional resources in your Kubernetes cluster to expand and extend your Kubernetes functionality. That's ultimately what I mean when I say Kubernetes is extensible. You can write your own resource definition that'll take the already existing and pre-baked Kubernetes functionality and expand it even more so. Nice, and it just shows how strong the ecosystem is. There's so many tools being built to make life easier. Yes, absolutely. Do you see any gotchas over and over again with people who are trying to use this stuff for the first time? Sometimes it, it can be a little overwhelming because I think there's so much you can do. There's so many tools that it's kind of, where do I begin? But a lot of what I spent, I spent a lot of my time last year focusing on how to make it simple, how to go from nothing. I don't even have a Docker file. All I have is, um, I, most of my demos, uh, prior to 
December of last year when I talked about Windows computers, most of them were, were Linux-based. But let's say I have a simple Node application. I don't have a Docker file. I don't have anything. I can use open source tools that I might already be familiar with as a developer, like VS Code, create a Docker file for me, actually be able to use the built-in debugger in VS Code to debug that Docker container, whether it's a single-stage Docker container or a multi-stage, which would be best practice. Multi-stage Docker builds um, being a best practice because I'm making sure that my container is not only smaller and uh, more productive, but it's also um, or more powerful, but it's also more secure, right? Because I'm removing any of the stuff that I don't need for runtime. If I'm doing something in build like the SDK, oftentimes for the actual run part of it, what I'm running in the container, all I need is the runtime. And I just copy the parts that I need from one bit, from one stage to the second stage. And that second stage really builds my container. But one of the questions I would get asked is how do I test that? So we go back to Visual Studio Code and you can use the debugger to test either Docker file. Once somebody masters how to debug their, their Docker container, then they can take that one step further and use Helm charts for their Kubernetes deployments. And if they don't know how to create a Helm chart, you can use a tool like Draft. And Draft uses two simple commands to actually create your Helm charts for you. You can test and run everything locally again without ever touching the cloud. You start understanding everything from a local perspective. And then you can get it into the cloud making a few modifications. You push your image to a private repository. You uh, set up your networking as needed for the cloud. That might be defining DNS or using an ingress controller. You, you slowly start to play with these things so that it starts making sense. And once it starts making sense, then you can start looking into, well, I need deeper networking. Well, I'm, I've heard about Istio. I'm interested in what Istio does. Or maybe Envoy or Ambassador. All of these tools are resource definition tools that would, uh, or custom resource definition tools that would further expand your Kubernetes experience. So it's just one of those things where you start from nothing, and then you can go all the way to full-blown Kubernetes, and then you can advance from there. And like I said, I spent most of last year doing those those demos. There's probably 60 plus videos online with a full in-depth 45 minute demo talking about um, what I just explained. But one of my goals over this next uh, month, over the next few weeks, is to take those demos and put them into bite-sized chunks, whether that's five to 15 minutes uh, to focus on, here's how to debug a Docker container. Here's how to test everything locally. Here's how to get it into the cloud. You, you kind of, I'm, I, my goal is to break it down even more so it becomes even more accessible for learning. It does seem like every time you have a problem, there's a tool for that. It's like you sort of get to a certain point, you're going to hit an issue, and then there's a tool that takes you past that issue. Yeah, and a lot of the tools, um, I mean, Microsoft is obviously heavily, have heavily invested in, but then also our open source uh, project VS Code, a lot of those tools already have extensions in VS Code. And there's certain times I even, I learn something new every day of, oh, wow, we have that. And then if I didn't know, <laughs> I want to immediately tell everyone else. And so it's just making sure that that message and that content is out there because this, this industry is growing so fast and the technology is changing so quickly that it's important to make sure that uh, everyone essentially is on the same page. Yeah, it, and it's it's a lot of stuff. I mean, I've been grabbing links as fast as you've been spitting them out there, Jess. It's it's a ton. Yeah. I actually want to go back to one you mentioned and sort of went on from, which was the open service broker for Azure. Yeah, uh, so that's one of the ways that I can actually 
manage or create and manage Azure resources from within my Kubernetes cluster. An hmm. example for that would be that I'm using a stateful application, like let's say something like WordPress. WordPress requires a MySQL database. I could mm -hmm. run a database inside my Kubernetes cluster, but there's reasons why I would advise against that, performance being one of them, uh, read writes, and just to me, it's still something, It's a it's this is a mixed conversation here. Some people like it, some people don't. But if I wanted to run it in, let's say, a managed database instance, like something like MySQL Server for Azure, I can do that. Number one, I can do that manually. I can connect my my WordPress Kubernetes pod to an external database that's running in Azure. But I can't, that means that somebody has to go create that or I have to create that for my CICD pipeline. I can also create it through a Helm chart and I can create it using open service broker for Azure where I can connect and manage those resources that exist and live outside of my cluster. Right. And so, I mean, you, you mentioned this in passing, that sort of Kubernetes can take over pieces of your CICD pipeline. It's like, yeah, the provisioning of your whole app can come through this service broker combined with Kubernetes. Yeah, and it's it's not only taking over and maybe like doing things that the CICD pipeline would do. It's also kind of keeping everything all in the same place, right? Locality mm -hmm. really matters when you're doing things on a big scale. So if I have a, a Helm chart or a large deployment of 10 services, a front end, a back end, all these different pieces that are out there flying around. And then they rely on different dependencies and resources that live outside of my cluster. I kind of want to be able to manage it still from one chart, from one management point. Right. And if I use something like OSBA, uh, then that simplifies that. I have the, the chart also calls the same service, even though it's not a Kubernetes resource, it still is identified as such because of an open service broker for Azure. Kind of the open service broker acts as, um, I guess, a proxy would be the best way. Is it kind of is the communicator between my Kubernetes cluster and my Azure subscription? And I, I'm looking at OSB's A's options, and they're mostly data storages, like the the MySQL, Postgres. Data storage would be the the, the best use case for that. Right. But they're also talking about stuff like Key Vault and Event Hubs and Service Bus, which I find interesting. That's a project that's also growing. Uh, so, mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's a lot of expansion that's happening, again, with pretty much a way to just simplify what an enterprise would need, right? If I want to manage things a little bit easier, whether that's my storage, whether that's, I mean, obviously databases would connect over to storage, Key Vault, Service Bus instances, at Ignite, we also announced that you can also do serverless with your AKS clusters. You can just really kind of expand on that. So OSBA is just another tool that exists to simplify the management of your enterprise applications. Yeah, I, I'm thinking you'd want to have Key Vault referenced through Kubernetes this way so that you could be deploying to different systems that you're issue using different Key Vaults. Rather than you put it in your code and now you have to make sure that you, you know, abstract that out when you want to change it. Yep. You can keep your, it's essentially the secrets that you would need to use in Kubernetes can tie mm -hmm. back over to Azure Key Vault. Because secrets right. might be something like when I'm, when maybe I'm deploying a web application and the image sits in a private database or a private mm -hmm. image repository, sorry, something like Azure Container Registry or Quay or whatever it is that's private. 
I have to create a secret that has those credentials for the Docker registry. I can create the secret that lives in my Kubernetes cluster, or I can also create a key vault reference. Now, I mean, I could put that in my code, right? I, I don't have to use this service. I'm just trying to think through why I'd, I'd rather use this service. You don't have to use that service. Again, it, yeah. I mean, this kind of goes back to, it, it's it's a common question. Mm -hmm. Do I have to use this? Why should I use this? Right. Whether it's WSL, Windows Subsystem for Linux on Windows, one of the first questions I got is, well, why should I use it? Same thing with Kubernetes. Why would I do Kubernetes over a virtual machine? No one in, in any of these toolings, whether it's Kubernetes itself or Istio or OSBA, no one is saying that you have to, but it's a tool that's there if you want to use it. The benefit that I would see from OSBA is if you want to keep everything kind of managed all in one place, OSBA mm -hmm. is a good way to do it. It's not the only way to do it. I might want to just manage things through my Helm chart and I have a simple web application. It's just a simple website. I don't need to go throw out all the big guns or all these additional toolings. But if I want to, the tool's there for me to use. Yeah, so there's a level of sophistication available to you if you want those capabilities. Exactly. That's uh, it's very interesting. It's, we've come a long way from thinking about migrating an existing ASP.NET app. Yep, and we've also come a long way from being more open-minded. If you also think of like a Microsoft perspective, mm -hmm. all of these tools now essentially allow you to really accomplish whatever you need to do from wherever you need to do it. You can manage all these resources and run all these toolings from a Windows, Linux, Mac, Mac system, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You want to do Windows containers. Obviously, we're still getting to the point to where we can match a managed service version of that. But Windows containers are supported through ACS Engine now. You want to do Linux containers. You want to manage this from your Mac. Go for it. You want this functionality of to connect your external resource to Kubernetes or wherever you want to run it you have that option. There's even something called Virtual Kublet, which Microsoft originally created in December of 2017. And then we donated this uh, last year, in December of 2018, to the CNCF, or the Cloud Native Cloud Foundation. And that essentially allows you to put a little virtual node in your Kubernetes cluster to deploy out to AC, ACI, Azure Container Instances, mm. which is the probably the fastest way to get started with a container in Kubernetes. Hmm. But you can do that even from Amazon. You can do that from third-party services using virtual kubelet. So we've really kind of come a long way to making sure that whatever your use case is, a solution exists to allow that to be possible. And if it doesn't exist, we now have our code open sourced on GitHub. It's open for contribution. Come make our code better. There's so many terms that uh, are new if you're new to this, you know, just getting in that you have to wrap your head around. Where does the word Kubernetes come from anyway? And by the way, what's a pod? So Kubernetes in general is actually, I believe it's a Greek word. Uh, and it has to deal with a lot, a lot of the metaphors and words that you hear kind of take place from the sea. Mm -hmm. um, I forget like the direct translation of some of them, but pod ties over to that because if you think of like when dolphins swim, um, they'll often swim in what's called a pod. Oh. So you can have multiple containers in one pod. Um, that might there, there's different use cases for why you would need that, and you can read a little bit more about that. Mm. That might be kind of going off tangent. Most common, you'll probably see one container in a pod, but you might have something like BusyBox listen l sitting in your pod alongside your working web app container. It, it just kind of depends on your um, your dependencies. But that's essentially what a pod is. It's where your containers live. Hmm. Usually you're going to have 
like, let's say two pods. I have a database just because my database connects over to my web application. Doesn't mean I'm going to put them in the same pod. I'll put them in different pods, but they're in the same deployment. And then the same deployment lives in the same namespace. The namespace allows me to keep the services and the deployments all tied together in an isolated fashion. So I might have a namespace for dev and a namespace for QA, but I keep the pods and the deployments and the ingress routing, uh, all of that separate from each other. Mm -hmm. So that's essentially kind of those high level definitions. I also kind of recommend playing with tools like draft and helm because it'll create you templates based on best practices without any interaction on your part, really like it's just two simple commands and it would create it. And then you can kind of look at what's created and, and begin to understand how, what works. You solely change one thing. Okay. I'll change what this pot is. I'll change what this replica is. Um, ultimately the way the, the charts are written, they're written in YAML, but the back end of Kubernetes is go. So also if you are a developer and you're trying to understand a little more, take a look at the code, understand mm. how, things are actually referenced and working from a under the hood kind of level. If, if that's your thing, if that's how you understand things and learn. Can you use JSON in there too? You can use JSON as well. Um, I think really the standard way to actually create your infrastructure as code is probably YAML, Okay. but you can ultimately that'll, you can choose to output your deployments as JSON or YAML or whatever your output preference is. Most of the time, though, I think I've always seen YAML as a preferred way to deploy. JSON can get um, pretty convoluted and tricky very fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's. I hate to compare it to XML, but yeah, when it gets big, it's remarkably XML-y. A few angle brackets, but still. Yeah. But Go Go is just not that strange a language, you know. You, it seem it feels familiar. Yeah, and. I think when, when something feels familiar and it feels comfortable, it's a little bit easier to understand. And it's not this big giant that I am trying to figure out where to even begin. Right. Although I really like the idea of coming in from the, the draft perspective, you're essentially giving yourself templates to look at sort of the right way to do things. Yeah. And if you, if you think back to, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I think back to how I learned both infrastructure and then, I, I still consider myself a developer on the infrastructure side because that that my just my first forefront of learning was still more ops based. But when you think back to how I think most people I've talked to learn, everyone starts somewhere, and it's usually from looking at what someone else has done. Somebody Absolutely. else had a really great idea. How did they do it? I kind of want to adapt it. Oh, I like what this person did. I like what that person did, and I kind of make my own. And that's how I start to understand. And again, if that's the way that your brain works, all that functionality and learning material is is out there, um, especially since all these toolings and projects and everything, it's all open source. It all lives on GitHub. You can just go take a look at it and kind of understand how it works. But even using a tool like Draft, you don't even have to sit there and look at the underlying code. It just gives you the template that you can sit there and get started with. Oh, here's how this did a deployment. Yeah, no, I love it. And it, it, it just makes all of this simpler. I don't want to reinvent the wheel. And the more that yeah. I can work from these standards, the happier I'm going to be. Work smarter, not harder. Yeah. Yeah. But it is interesting to think about 
decompose. You know, we've gone through this in .NET Rocks, moving an on-premise VM into a cloud VM and then started to peel off these Azure websites. To think through doing the same thing down to the container level is really interesting to me. But, uh, you, you know, you don't have to rewrite your app. You can move it to these more modern methods. Yes. And I think that's also like re reminding people that that possibility exists mm -hmm. is really reassuring because there's so many times where I've talked to customers or people have attended my sessions where, especially from the Windows community, they're so scared they're going to have to refactor everything into .NET Core and they either don't have the overhead to do that or they don't have the time and resources available right now, but they still want to take a part of some of those benefits and they can now with, again, going back to the beginning of uh, what we were talking about, but they can now with Windows containers and with right. some of these other toolings, you can use Helm and Draft with Windows containers. That was awesome. on, or that was a part of the Windows session that I did with Patrick at KubeCon. And I even tied in CI CD. I could do mm. Azure DevOps, which was formerly VSTS, mm -hmm. or I could use a, a more Kubernetes cloud native tooling like CodeFresh and I demoed both of them to handle either scenario. So, and actually there's a video of that complete with the whole walkthrough, the code already exists on GitHub. There's a whole lab that's available and a walkthrough of the demos. It's one of my most recent blog posts on my blog and it's Windows containers at KubeCon. It's, it's on the front page so you couldn't miss it. Awesome. But yeah, there's so many, I mean, the Windows community is no longer excluded and reminding people that they don't have to change, that they can still utilize this functionality, I think is very reassuring. Yeah, no, I really appreciate the idea of I can use containers and get be a part of all of this, and I don't have to have core. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great combination. I will include a link to your, your show notes or your, um, your, your session. Cool. Yeah, the, there's a little bit of a walkthrough as well as links and pointing directories, and then there's the video embedded in the blog post as well. Great. So Jessica, what's in your inbox? What's next for you? Uh, slowly going through the emails that I missed mm -hmm. uh, over the holiday <laughs> vacation. Um, booking travel because the Microsoft, so Microsoft Ignite was in September at Orlando or right. in Orlando, but then we're also taking Ignite on tour to a variety of different cities around the world. I will be at a handful of them. So I'm also getting um, content learned and scheduled and prepped for that travel booked. I mean, it's pretty much just kind of catching up after after the holidays, but it's pretty much what's in my inbox. Uh, you can always see if, if people want to meet me or see more of my, my sessions and my demos. You can go to loecda.com forward slash talks, I believe, or you just click on talks. And then I'm constantly updating that with everywhere I'm speaking, as is the rest of my DevOps team. Great. Awesome. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, Carl. Thank you, Richard. Richard, it's always great to hear from you. Carl, very nice to meet you virtually. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios. 
a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a